Hello. Hello. It is an absolutely stunning day in Los Angeles. Yesterday we had a rare rainy day. And so now we have the day after the rain day, which in LA is very rare indeed. Everything smells so good. The air is cool upon your skin. The clouds in the sky are high and puffy. Thank you, Lord Jesus. God opened up the skies after what happened on the Oscars the other night. He let it rain down upon our skin, for it was covered in the muck of ego and celebrity and materialism and hypocrisy and violence. He washed us clean from the second slap heard round the world. The first slap, of course, heard round the world was the slap delivered upon Irene's face during a 1998 episode of The Real World Seattle. Unfortunately, the Lord was unable to wash away the thousands of hot takes that have just piled up like trash in the streets, which I'll get to in a moment. But first, I'm recording today without Caitlin. We're going to get her set up with some better audio equipment so she sounds um, a little more clear. So this week, it's just little old me talking into the void once again. Speaking of day after rain day, the garden, wow, it is doing so well. Rain is a special event in the Southern California garden, you know, because rainwater just hits different, you know, it's, it's oxygenated. And uh, I've always noticed how green and vibrant the garden will look after rain. Not, not the same as when you water it by hand. No, no. Um, it, the, the, the raindrops, I don't know the science behind it, but they, they become oxygenated. That's just a word I saw. And I, it sounds good. Whatever it means, it sounds real good for your garden. And you can actually buy oxygen, oxygenators for your hose so that the water comes out more like rainwater. But I, uh, I'm not quite at that level yet. I, I am, however, using a filter on my water that removes the chlorine and other treatment chemicals so that, you know, the water that hits that soil is pure and not going to um, harsh the vibe, if you will, in the uh, party that is going on with all those microorganisms in the soil. And plus rain, you know, when it comes down, rain is more gradual. It soaks the soil deeper and over a longer period of time, and it gets into every nook and cranny in your soil. And this is why people try to mimic the slow and steady nature of rain by setting up drip irrigation systems. There are other benefits, of course, to drip irrigation. It saves something like, I think I read, like 70% of water um, used to water uh, a landscape or a garden. It prevents, because it prevents runoff, because, you know, when you're watering by hand, for instance, you're just standing over it with a hose, gushing it, because you don't have time to let it sit there and let it drip out of the hose for an hour. (laughs) So you're just blasting it with water, and a lot of that will just rush through the soil, or on top of the soil, if you're on, um, like, very dry land, um, 
but it'll just rush out of the bottom of your raised bed or your pot or whatever, and there's a lot of runoff. And then also, of course, if you're using overhead sprinklers, you know, yes, that's kind of like rain, but in a dry, arid environment, that water can fly away and evaporate much more quickly than if it was delivered directly to the to the ground. So I have a soaker hose in my raised beds, and when it's running, it kind of looks like it's sweating. <laughs> it's very porous. Um and then uh, I hook up, I, I couldn't, be because as I mentioned, I, I don't own the property, I can't run, like, I can't dig a trench and run pipe, you know, across the property. So what I do is I hook up the hose to the raised beds with like a splitter. Um, when it's time, you know, to water, I just go to the bed with the hose and hook it up and, and it runs from there. Um, but I hadn't figured out a way of doing that for my raised containers and my grow bags, which I have scattered around the garden, um, mainly in two main areas. And I've got about 20 plants in grow bags and pots. Hand watering those is just always time consuming. And as mentioned, these plants aren't getting that slow drip system that the raised beds were getting. So I started researching and I was like, wait, I, could I do a drip system in, in containers? Like, how would that work? Um, so I watched some videos and, you know, basically I can do the same. Because I thought, you know, without running, um, you know, piping across the property, how would I do it? I just couldn't envision it. I was like, wait, why don't I just do what I'm doing with the raised beds, but with just a different type of system of hoses and tubes and stuff where I, I go up to the area of those grow bags and pots and I hook up the hose there at a hookup I've set up. And I watched some videos, like I said, I, I bought the equipment. I spent a couple of days like carefully running the tubing and cutting and connecting. Basically you get, uh, you have to, to, to set up your hookup point, which normally you would do at your spigot, you know, or where your hose, what do they call it? Um, bib bib is where it sticks up out of the ground normally you do this there but because I ha I'm not right next to that I I had to set up a little my own little um oh, what do you call it spigot point you know water source point I don't know what I'm trying to say I've just set that up and you know what you get is you know you get a filter a backflow preventer a psi reducer um, I'm not sure what PSI stands for exactly, but I know it involves water pressure and you want to get the right kind of water pressure to go with different types of soaker hoses, drip hoses, um, because if it's too much pressure, it'll blow out, you know, all your connections and your, um, it, it won't, it won't be what you want. So, um, you get all that set up, you, you then you hook up a main distribution line of poly tubing and then along that, you punch the holes and you attach microtube lines that each one runs up into each pot. And then from that, you attach a different type of tubing that is a soaker or drip tubing. Um, there's so many different configurations you can do. Um, but I, I did that and it feels, it's fun because it feels like you're doing like grown up tinker toys or maybe like the better comparison is Habitrail. Remember Habitrail? A Habitrail for water to your plants. Habitrail was like a system of tubes and pipes and stuff and, and um, amusement park rides for your hamsters, for your pet hamsters or gerbils. I personally never had or wanted 
those as pets, but I really loved the concept of those habit trail things, those mazes. <laughs> we saw like pictures of them in catalogs um, or some friends had some basic setups and they just looked really fun. And anyway, it was a very satisfying project and I got to use my brain in all different ways with my body together, all combining to adapt a system to my specific needs, you know, which was a little different. So I couldn't find a tutorial to tell me exactly what I needed to do. So I had to use my own logic and power of thinking to figure it out, which, you know, involved standing in, you know, the aisles in Home Depot, just fiddling with random parts until I think I had figured it out, um, trying different fittings and things. And it's so fun to just use your logic. Because if I had gone up to a worker in Home Depot and described to them what I was doing, they would have looked at me like, like, what? You know? And so I really had to use my own, like, theories in my head. You know, just, okay, if this piece goes here, and I'm trying to hook up the hose here, and theoretically, this should work, right? And I'm I go home, I try it out, and it works. And you just, you feel like a god. You feel like an inventor. Um, but then when it doesn't work, you're, you're, you're just Elizabeth Holmes staring unblinkingly into a camera in complete denial that you're a fucking idiot that shouldn't be playing around with things that you don't understand. <laughs> so it could have easily gone the uh, Elizabeth Holmes route with my little irrigation <laughs> idea. Which, by the way, if you're not watching The Dropout on Hulu, I highly recommend it. It is so well done. The acting, the editing, writing, direction, music, all of it. I enjoy, you know, I I love a scripted show that has come from a true story. Even if I've already seen like a 12-part documentary series on it, I also want to see the scripted, you know, like acted version of it. Because then you can really see the creative choices that go on in the storytelling. If you know the hard-boiled, you know, documentary version of it, then when you watch the scripted, you can see the artistic flair that goes into that and the creative choices that are being made. Um, A great example is the scene where Elizabeth is dancing over to Sunny. And you got to see it if you haven't seen it. There's a lot of humor in this show that I really appreciate. But she's dancing over to Sunny. And, like, do we know that that's how Elizabeth Holmes really would dance over to her boyfriend? Do we even know that that private moment between them actually even happened at all? No. But given what we do know about Elizabeth Holmes, it felt such like such a great choice, like such an authentic interpretation of the character of this person. And Amanda Seyfried, 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 she's brilliant. And it, I just, it's crazy how someone who seems like such a, Elizabeth Holmes seems like a psychopath. And even at one point she says to Sonny, like, you know, I don't feel emotions like other people do. Like you, you sense she's narcissist, sociopath, psychopath, whatever the, whatever point on the neurological spectrum she's on. Um, you still find yourself at points rooting for her which I think is really hard to do going into it knowing that this person is awful and I think that that is um great storytelling anyway 
So back to my irrigation system. Oh, it's all set up. It works beautifully. Yeah, I've got a, a, a few leaks that I need to fix um, that are pain in the ass. It was really kind of very sweaty work. Like, you know, a lot of really tense, I would call it like Pilates level activity because you're, you're squeezing your muscles to like make the punch these holes and like make these tubes fit over the different fittings and stuff. And that just required a lot of like squeezing your fingers and your arms together, like your whole body, like push it. (laughs) And I, and it was really hot the days I was doing it. I was just, just covered in sweat. I'm like, I always say like, if, if my knee pits, like, you know, your armpit, but if my knee pit is sweating, I know that I'm working hard. So uh, great reward for all that work. And the garden looks great so far. This time of year, is always, the garden always looks so good. It's always before it gets really hot. It just looks its best and everything's starting to really grow. And you can see how green it is. And all the seedlings are growing, doing great. And the seeds that I have directly sown into the garden have almost all sprouted. Beans, okra, lettuce, collards, fennel, boy, uh, bok choy, carrots, radishes, black-eyed peas, some flowers. They've all sprouted. They're growing. And it looks great. Um, even though my indoor seedlings were a failure, I still get to have these ones that I've done from seed directly out there. And that's been fun. And I've, I have been watching the garden like a hawk though, because of past experience, I have learned that seedlings can be completely destroyed overnight if you are not watching carefully for pests and other hazards. And I noticed something was nibbling on some of the plants. So I went out there at night with a headlamp because I couldn't see anything during the day that could have been the culprit. And I went on my bug hunt. And because a lot of these pests operate at night under the cover of darkness So I went out there with a little jar of soap water, put on my gloves, and I went hunting. Now, in the past, I've dealt with things like an earwig infestation. Earwigs, you know them when you see them. They're those weird scorpion-looking flat things, like they have giant claws on their head. Like, they're just nasty-looking. They are really, they give you the heebie-jeebies when you see them. A few of those in the garden, no problem. They're efficient, um decomposers you you want to see those especially like in your compost bin but if you got a shit ton of them you don't want them because they'll eat everything down to the nubs I had a really bad one infestation of them at my last place and they are hard to get rid of uh so those um I've dealt with slugs and snails so I was looking for those I haven't seen any evidence of them you know the evidence of slug and snails is one if you go out there at night and you see them physically but also in the day you see evidence of their like sparkly little slug trails all over everything I haven't really seen that and the holes on the leaves look like they might be slugs grasshoppers um maybe a cutworm which digs down into the soil earwigs um, but I just haven't seen any evidence of any of caterpillars. I haven't seen any evidence, seen any of them. So I don't really know what's doing it. And I also have bug netting, like netting over the two raised beds. And so I don't think grasshoppers are getting in there. So, but what I did find um, that was, that were chowing down on the brand new seedlings, like around the stalks, were a shit ton of pill bugs. Uh, some people, I, I grew up calling them roly polies. 
they look like a little tiny armadillo, <laughs> black armadillo. And when you when you get near them, they will defensively roll up into a like a perfect ball, and they look like a little black, almost metal ball, like a like a BB. Um, but they it's a bug. And I went out there, I got maybe 50 of them, just picked them out by hand. I had gloves on. No way could I do that barehanded. I have before, though, in, a, in the heat of the moment, you know, and when I need to get rid of a bug, I'll just grab it with my bare hands. I am brave. So, dealt with that. Other ways that you can deal with it, uh, neem oil, naturally, because I don't want to use any, any chemicals. Neem oil, um is a, a real handy use, a useful substance for the organic gardener. You mix it up with, dilute it with water, you spray it around things, and it it smells kind of um, natural, like a massage oil almost kind of smell. And it it deters um, plant uh, bugs. They don't like the smell and the taste of it. There's also something called DE, diatomaceous earth, which is the fossilized skeletons of microscopic single-celled aquatic organisms called diatoms. And their skeletons are made of a natural substance called silica, which makes up like 26% of the Earth's crust by weight. Yes, I just read that. Let's be honest. I would not have been able to memorize that sentence. (laughs) Life is too short for that. So anyway, this dust is, it's very sharp. It doesn't hurt us or animals um, if we were to ingest it. But bugs don't like it. It's very, very bad for them. So I don't like going crazy with this stuff, especially the DE, because I don't want to hurt, um, you know, good beneficial insects that are in the garden or bees or pollinators or anything like that. I don't, I don't want to mess them up. So I'll swoop in to try and prevent and nip in an infestation in the bud, bring things back to balance. So use all those tools. There's all other kinds of things that people use. They'll beer traps. You put beer in a in a little cup, and the slugs will go in there. Earwigs will go in there too. Sometimes um, there, there's all kinds of things I've tried. But hand hunting actually I find to be one of the best. And then if you really need to bring out the big guns, I have something called Sluggo, <laughs> and it's these little white pellets, and it is approved for organic gardening, but I don't know. It's again, I, I, it's some kind of uh, um, chemical or, or a naturally occurring chemical, but it's in these little pellets and you put it down. But I have something called Sluggo Plus, which also kills earwigs and roly polies and things like that. Now, I'll occasionally put that down if it's really bad. So, anyway, um, another way of dealing with pests in the garden is introducing natural predators like ladybugs. Um, there's other examples that I'm not thinking of, but one I'll talk about in just a second. Um, so I go out there the other night and I'm looking for the culprit on my eggplant and I look under the leaf and wow, there she, there she was not my enemy, but the enemy of my enemy, a black widow, just as plain as day, hanging out on her little web that she had created under the, on the other underside of the plant Now, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I have seen black widows out there before in in my compost bin. And I don't like killing spiders. They are very efficient predators. But boy, do they give me the shivers. And especially black widows. Like, I feel like I'm covered in spiders right now. Just talking about them. Black widows, they're, they're dangerous. You don't want to get bit by one. 
I was curious, though, how dangerous are we talking? Do they get a bad rap? So I looked it up, and apparently they're not, they're not as bad as I think we think they are. Because one, well, they're not aggressive at all. They will run away from you if you get near them. Um, they don't want to be in a fight. They're not going to jump on you. Like, <laughs> Their bites are, they're not deadly for most healthy adults. Um, and from, a, from what I was reading, the black widow bites are really rare. Again, because I think they do not, they, they don't, they don't go for you. <laughs> Look, you don't want it to happen. You don't want to get bit by this spider. I'm not saying you're going out there looking for trouble. Um, you should definitely take precautions, especially if you've got kids and pets running around. Again, rare for that to happen. But still, you know, you, you, if you see them around where people's hands are going, like on the handles of a trash can or around the compost bin, you know, yeah, get, move them out of there. Get them out of there. You don't, and if you see an egg sack, because they're easy to identify if you know what they look like. You know, maybe squish it. Ugh, I don't want to do that either. Fuck. But you know what I'm talking about. But on the other hand, you know, you also don't need to go out to your yard with, with a, with a you know, a, a fumigation bomb and do the scorched earth approach to just kill one spider. I understand the inclination to burn your whole house down because of one bug in there that you don't like. I've been there. But I try to coexist because they are my friends. The enemy of my enemy is my friend in the garden. And use gloves. Be smart. Uh, don't leave your shoes outside. And if you do, make sure there's no spider in there when you put them on. And from what I read, that is actually the most common way of a, of a black widow bite is when the spider is in your clothes and you're shoving your hands or your feet in there and the spider has no choice. And God, that is freaking me out thinking about it. Fuck. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, but I've noticed just one more note about black widow. I have observed that the, the, there's been less nibbling on the eggplant ever since I saw that spider and I, I left, I let her be. Okay. I will continue to observe before I take further action. Observation, you know, it's a key component to gardening, observing your garden. It's a key component to life. I mean, I think, you know, yes, you go out in the garden, you need to observe your plants and know what's going on. But it's also a wonderful tool, observation, as we know, for a comedian. And here we go. I did it. Sliding on in, shifting over, easing into the hot take. Here we go. <laughs> Wee! <laughs> but seriously, there, there, is, there is so much good advice out there on how to become a great comedian or joke writer or creative person in general. But one that I don't think is talked about enough, I mean, people will mention it sort of like in passing, but they don't talk about the skill of observation and the practice of it. And I think that the greatest comedians, I mean, nobody would, this isn't new what I'm saying. I, I would venture to say any type of artist. They are brilliant observers of the world around them. And, and of course, that extra step, not just an observer, but they are a processor of the world around them and then they output something new with what they have observed. 
But that first step is the observation. And it's a skill I don't know if comedians, especially I think artists, it's more valued, you know, of, of observing and recording. And I don't know if comedians are, are we talk enough about the power of observation. And like I said, the practice of it. You know, you don't move through life with blinders on. You notice everything around you. You try to, you know, observation, it feels maybe like it's a passive thing. But what I've learned is that you have to be actively engaged in it for it to be useful. And it doesn't feel active. It doesn't feel like the practice of doing comedy because you're not writing or making something or performing. And... Sometimes I think observation is just a way of being as an artist as you move through the world to make sure you're not walking around, like I said, with blinders on. Even if you have no intention, you're going through your day and you're not like, I'm going to make notes today about everything I see for my act. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about being open to the world around you, being porous. You need to be an observant person to see what's happening around you. Notice the little nibble on the plant. Well, then you see the leaves curling just so. Is the plant thirsty? Oh, the the leaves on this one are green, but then this one's turning a little pale. What is going on here? And you can only know what's happening around you if you're paying attention consistently over a period of time. You can start to see the big picture over time. You make connections. Oh, there's a little less nibbling in the plant because I observed the black widow spider standing guard the other night. And you can synthesize all that information and use it to bring forth something beautiful in the garden, your fruit, your veggies, and in in your art, your work. (laughs) I will never stop comparing gardening to the work of of an artist. Never. (laughs) if you don't like it leave with comedy and writing I think taking time specifically for observation is essential or like I said you know just making sure you're not in tunnel vision you know I I have to remind myself to be observant I I can get really just in my own head when I'm walking, when I'm moving through the world, you know, walking down the street, driving a car, going through the airport, going in the store, I'm just in my own head and I'm not seeing what's going on around me. And I'll notice that I'm not paying attention when Scott will go, Oh my God, did you see that lady? Did you see her? Did you see what she was doing? You know? And uh, I'll go, no, I didn't see it. And then I'm like, oh, I'm tired. And some of that is I get overstimulated because I am a very sensitive person. I am a very observant person. And there's times where I can't take any more input, no more stimulation, and I have to shut down and build a wall, a little bubble wrap around myself. So that that's, it's a balance. It reminds me of one of my favorite lines from one of my favorite books, The Color Purple by Alice Walker. And it's the part that refers to the title of the book. Um, And she writes, I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. People think pleasing God is all God cares about. But any fool living in the world can see it always trying to please us back. God. I love it. It's so good. And and obviously the, the quote. There's context there and, a, and a, an incredible story there that I can't, <laughs> that it's not my own. And 
not trying to cherry pick out of that, but uh, the, that very human observation right there. I just, I love the simple meaning of it. And it reminds me that there's so much more for us to notice and take in than, than sometimes we realize and that the world is there for us. It's all, it's there for the picking. As a comedian, there's so much to draw on in the world. Life is so absurd without even having to look for it, really. It's there presenting itself to us at all times. And if you don't live an observant life, you fail to notice those funny things, the weird things, and even the mundane and common things that we all experience, which then become those universal connections that you make in a joke. You know, when you're moving through the world, don't just go from point A to point B. The funny way a sign is worded, the awkwardness of an interaction, you know, between strangers that you see. Um, And I think this is also why comedians draw upon, you know, they get their best stuff from from those direct things right around them. The, the, the Their relationships, their spouse, partner, child, parent, you know. Because you spend so much time with those people, you you know them really well. And so you can pick up on all the details that are funny and true and surprising and profound. And I think that's where you get your best stuff. The things you observe that most other people would just kind of gloss over. You take it in as an artist, you absorb it, and then you filter that through your particular voice and perspective. It's why I think good comedians make sure that they live a life outside of just comedy. They go out there and really live and be in the world so they can have something to talk about. You can't you can tell when a comedian all they do is spend their time in the back of the comedy club. It's not even that they do jokes about comedy, which, you know, please, I talk a lot about comedy in my comedy. <laughs> um that's just the groove I'm in right now is commenting on the business side of, of this world, and which is really just an ultimately a, a comment on America and capitalism, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot there that I'm digging into in my work um, and will be doing more of soon. But you can tell when a comedian spends a lot of time, almost all their time with other comedians in the open mics in just all day along as they eat, breathe and sleep comedy and the comedy scene. And you can tell in their jokes cause they feel very tailored for the other comedians. And it feels just not textured. Like that does it does like, like they, like they're almost making up incidents. Oh, I was texting this chick the other day. You know, you can tell that they are just imagining what they would believe to be a funny scenario instead of going out living and getting that real stuff that you can't make up from life that feels much more specific and true. Now, there are different levels of observation that go into and different types of observation that go into your work. So there's the, what I would call fast observation, where that quick observation, where you turn it around into a joke in the moment, and that's a very valuable skill. It works so well, and it's the live performance element, um, you know, that really is a special thing. You know, what's happening in the room? Who are the people in the crowd? How are they reacting to you? 
And some of my favorite comedy is when a comedian, like, when they take some time to, like, comment on the space they are in, make fun of the decor, the sounds, the smells, the city, the geography, you know, that, that feels so in the moment. And, and it's a, like a flex, I guess, is what they would call it. When a comedian can be that funny in the moment, if it's if you go, oh, this is happening now. This is not planned. Even if they spent maybe 10 minutes in the green room sizing up the place and coming up with some jokes off the spot. It makes it feel more in the moment and alive. You can also, of course, not just comment on the decor of the room, but there's people in that room. Commenting on specific audience members, you can see where this is headed, <laughs> can be really funny and joyful and and warm-hearted and, and a gentle ribbing or a pointing out of something really absurd or funny of, of something going on with people in the room. And it can also sway the other way to be cruel, uh, misguided, it can backfire. And that's really something that varies from comic to comic or from night to night, from crowd to crowd. And when you're up there as a comedian, you'll, you'll work with what's around you. And you have to not only be very observant, but you have to be able to synthesize what you observe at lightning speed and spit it back out in a funny way that doesn't cause the audience to revolt. <laughs> so it's really exhilarating to see when a comedian does this well. And when I have been able to have those moments myself, I feel very powerful and magical, like a wizard, you know? So that's your fast observation. Then there's another skill, which I think really is never talked about, which is slow observation. Slow observation is what I would call the gradual intake of the world around you over time that really gives rise to the masterpiece level stuff. The full hour of stand-up, that solo show, the novel, the great works. <laughs> yes, those. But also, slow observation can give rise to shorter jokes that are so good and so concise and specific and yet somehow universal. Those jokes that you memorize and repeat back to your friends as an audience member, the ones that seem to have summed up the totality of human experience in one line, I don't think you can write those jokes without being an observant person in this more slow big picture, step back kind of way. It is a slow observation that gives you perspective, right? It's a gathering of details over time, collecting those in your basket over time, and then you start making connections. That's a higher level of commentary, of critical thinking about the world around us. It's honestly what can make those, those, those concise one-liner jokes you know, aside from your your body of work, your voice, what is it you're trying to say? Aside from that, those, that, that all encapsulating one joke that's so memorable, it, it's it, what makes it so incredible is that it's standing on a larger foundation of understanding of the human experience, of why people do this or that. And you allow the audience to dig so deep into just the, that short sentence and all of the truth that it unveils and the and the surprise and the laughter that it brings and I, I'm I was trying to think of an example before I was working on this 
um, what I wanted to say today. And there's a lot of examples. And, and again, I don't love giving examples on this podcast because, once again, comedy is subjective. So what I think is brilliant is another person's hack, you know. Um, but I'll think of one one one-liner that I always go back to of like, God, that joke. Ugh, I love it. So this one is from so long ago, probably over 10 years ago, um, in New York, a comedian named Andre Dubouche, who went on to write for Conan for a long time. He's a very, very funny person. And he was always so creative and hilarious with the stuff he did on stage. He he didn't have, he wasn't like constricted to the boundaries of traditional stand-up format. He would always have different things he was trying. And one time he just told a joke and I can't remember where I saw it or the context of it. And I've told him how much I love this joke before. And I, I feel like when I told him, he's like, I don't even remember saying that. <laughs> so that just tells you as heavy of an analysis I'm giving right now. It's still just comedy. It's still just farts in the wind. But here's the joke. He goes, knock, knock. And the audience goes, who's there? And then just very quickly, he goes, we're all going to die. So he goes, knock, knock. Who's there? We're all going to die. <laughs> I laughed so hard. I don't know if I'd ever heard. Maybe that's anti-comedy. I don't know what you what category you would put that in. But he took the, the hackiest joke structure on earth. A joke reserved usually for children. And he placed it right on the edge of the great abyss of nihilism. The lightest of the light smashed up against the darkest of the dark. And then on the other side, laughter, freedom. Who cares? We're all going to die. So we might as well just laugh along the way. And in a way, the joke subverts comedy itself. While also explaining why we need it. Damn. How does one little line do that? And maybe I'm putting too much into it. And there may be other better examples of this kind of joke that I'm talking about but for me that was it's hard to do jokes like that unless you're a, someone who is has a slower deeper observation of the human experience you're not just a doing word play you're thinking deeper about humanity I think um, most of the greats as we call them that their stand-up specials reflect that kind of slow observation. Like when a comedian, they you can just tell when they have such a clear perspective and voice. They're firing on all cylinders. They don't miss anything. They're up on the stage like a tree. You know, a, a vast root system beneath them that got them there. Uh, taking from all the big and small experiences of life, sucking it all up and presenting it back to you in a very intentional way. And I know, again, it's so self-serious what I'm saying now, but it's just what I've been thinking about. Um, weirdly, this is what, the, what my mind went after the debacle at the Oscars the other night. Uh, so firstly, I want to say that the moment it happened, ah, like many others, I got very anxious. I was surprised at how anxious it made me. Like, I actually had chest tightness, like... Like, I was having an anxiety attack. Like, I was like, do I need my inhaler? <laughs> it was so unexpected. And I felt like, oh, my God, reality is collapsing. <laughs> Just 
on the surface of that very moment, all I could think was, is this real? And I think people, that was the first thing of like, was that a, a bit or was that real? And then when you realize it's real, you go, is this real? And then came the feeling of, oh no, somebody very famous that I, that we all beloved, we love him, he, you know, for the most part, we, we, he lost control of his emotions and he's acting outside the social norms of this very, very public and highfalutin event. And this A-list celebrity just hit another A-list celebrity at Hollywood's biggest night. <laughs> and from what I know of Will Smith, he is not a violent person. You know, we, we've never heard reports in the past of him getting into physical altercations like left and right. I mean, have you? I, I had never heard that. Um, so, yeah, it was a shock. <laughs> I, I, my, my first visceral human reaction was, oh, God, he just made a huge, huge fucking mistake. And it is so uncomfortable to see someone lose themselves like that and fuck up so badly. And Chris Rock, how is he? Is he hurt? Is his face stinging? What happens now? I mean, it really was so crazy. And by the way, I wasn't even watching. I was literally just, I didn't watch the Oscars this year. I didn't feel like it. And I, but I was like looking at Twitter and doing other stuff. And so I was seeing in real time the videos come in. So it was like I was watching in a way. I was seeing it kind of secondhand. And within two minutes of that, well, then the doom took over. And I thought, oh, God. The discourse on this is going to be bad. And I turn to Scott and I go, buckle up for the shit show. <laughs> because I'm thinking, okay, you've got the Oscars, already a cultural live wire. Even the most boring Oscars ever causes controversy. The woke wars, this is like ground zero of the woke wars. Uh, and I use that in, ter in quotes because it's a stupid woke war term is stupid to me. But that's what other people would call it. Uh, it's where Hollywood elites gather. It's where we are at an inter intersection of fandoms, political debates, double standards, massive wealth, corporate tone deafness, systematic abuse, hollow platitudes. They all combine to stir up the discourse year after year. And now this happens? And it involves two black men, one of whom is a stand-up comedian so now we got to bring in the what is comedy debate all over again. And now every comedian, including me, feels like we got to speak about it. <laughs> and then, wait, oh, oh, wait. On top of that, also, it involves a black woman who is balding because of a disease she can't help. <laughs> and just a nice little cherry on top. All that's happening in a very, very white space. Oh, God. Oh, God. A lot of complicated dynamics at play here, and uh, I can assure you the vast majority of us, including myself, cannot handle that level of nuance, <laughs> and especially on social media. Fuck. So I'm like, here we go. Hang on tight. Fall out of this is going to be a ride. Here we go over the hill. Wee! And the next day, my God, I was not wrong. Whoa. I knew there would be bad takes, but I had no idea. Good Christ. Oh, people comparing it to the Ukraine. I mean, of course, there was a lot of that. And then, I mean, look, if you haven't looked online on social media, people's hot takes on this, don't just don't do it. Save yourself. Rod.
<laughs> now, I know I am dripping in hypocrisy here because I am, I too am adding my hot take to the, to the trash piling up in the streets. What's one more on top? You know, come on, go with me. <laughs> and as I mentioned, there's a lot about this situation that I don't really understand that I don't think any of us do because there's obviously a lot under the surface there. And it's, it's not really my place. It's definitely not my place to litigate what happened. I'm actually, I'm actually more interested in the discourse and the reaction to it all than I am in the incident itself, right? You know how I am. I like the, I like talking about the discourse. But in order to talk about the discourse, I feel like I do need to mention a few observations about what actually happened. So I apologize. So first off, Chris Rock, who I personally think is one of the greats. I truly love him as a comedian. Um, I've never, I don't think I've ever met him. Anyway, I think he stumbled a bit with what sounded to me like a throwaway joke. And I think that's the consensus is that it wasn't really scripted. And he just sort of said it off the top of his head. Because um, I'll get to that in a second. But the, I think he stumbled a bit with this joke. But first, the context is important because this is the Oscars. All right. It, it's not his stand up special. It's not a stand up comedy club. As much as comedians would like to equate what happened with, like, what happened to them at the open mic off the Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> he He's not going to come out there with his personal material, his life's work. This is not what this is for. So just say that off the top. I, I've written for these types of shows before, for award shows and event shows like this. Um, and the hosts and the comedian presenters, they, they're grabbing for those rapid fire topical jokes about the people in the room and the circumstances of the night. It's that fast observation I was talking about. Even the prepared material is done quickly and it needs to feel fast. It, feel, it needs to feel in the moment. This is an, an event and the jokes need to be tailored to it. Now, don't be fooled. Because it takes a great level of skill to pull these types of jokes off. The audience is weird. There's massive celebrities in the audience. Self-important egos are just stinking up the whole place. Stuffy. Stuffy, stuffy, stuffy. And it's live TV. And it's the cultural minefield, as I mentioned previously. So it's, it's not an easy task. Given that, I do think the joke sounded off the cuff, though I, I'm not sure. I don't know if Chris Rock has said that one way or another. I, I think it looked to me like that in the moment, in the room, pulling from what he could see right in front of him. Jada Pinkett Smith was sitting right in front of him. So regardless of whether it was written or improvised, I personally don't think the joke was very nice. But I don't think it was planned. And it's easier to make a mistake when it's when it's unplanned. And so let's talk about that, because I think people would disagree with me that the joke wasn't nice. They probably like it was so tame. It was J.I. Jane. She was he, he was saying she was a badass for having a shaved head. He didn't know she had alopecia. <laughs> OK, maybe true. However, uh, you know, she does have alopecia and she has spoken about it. And she struggled with losing her hair. So the intent versus impact, there, there's that element of it. But again, he didn't know that. And maybe he meant it 
well instead of as an insult. He meant it as a compliment. Um, but still, now here's the part where I'm like, well, this is why, it, you know, it wasn't thought through because he was just throwing something out that he saw right in front of him. Is that, you know, isn't it a risky move, no matter who you are, to comment on a black woman's hair or lack thereof? Like, just maybe don't go there. And look, and that's an, a point of argument, too. So on one hand, shouldn't Chris Rock, of all people, know that? Because he made a whole documentary about that very topic, about black hair. Or maybe because he made the documentary about black hair, he felt entitled to make that joke. I, I can't speak to those things. It's not my area as a white person. Um, it, I don't, and, and not knowing Chris or Jada Pinkett Smith personally, like, I don't know what was in their heads, okay? I don't know the answer to that. But either way, the joke did not go over well <laughs> with her or her husband, Will Smith. It didn't work. And I know people are trying to point to some kind of gotcha thing by saying, but look, Will was laughing. There's footage of him laughing right when Chris told the joke. So, so, and I'm not, I'm not really sure what the point of that is. I don't know if it, I don't know what that provides in whatever argument you're trying to make. Because first off, um, maybe he was laughing at the joke and then realized it hurt his wife's feelings. And that is what pissed him off. Um, you know, because just because it didn't hurt you doesn't mean you don't get mad when it hurts your beloved. <laughs> uh, but I think people t reading too much into the laugh because you can easily explain it. Because I, I think people are reading too much into it. Because when you're in a setting like that, again, a lot of the context is being ripped away in the in these conversations, which is what Twitter is for. It's for removing context. When you're in a setting like that, even just as an audience member at a regular comedy show, sometimes you are physically laughing and smiling because it's the reaction expected of you. And you're laughing without even hearing the punchline sometimes. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've been watching a comedy show and I am fully not paying attention. I'm looking at my phone and I will still laugh audibly at the appropriate moment because it's like a Pavlovian response at that point, especially if the comedian has a rhythm, if they're like a one-liner comic, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da, ha-ha-ha, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, ha-ha. Like, you get stuck in that sometimes. And, and sometimes you're laughing because the people around you are laughing. It's like yawning. Like, I mean, this is real animal behavior stuff, okay? Now, okay, so there's that. Now add cameras on you. This is a big moment for him. A lot of pressure on him. Um, again, we don't, we're not in there with him. He might just be laughing along, thinking about something totally different. Just like, okay, the cameras are on me. Laugh. Look like you're having fun, Will. You know, who knows? There's that element to it. And so I'm just saying that he might have not had heard the joke and he might have just been laughing. But what the point is, is that they cut away before we saw the transition for when we didn't see him go, wait, what did he say? Or we didn't see him see his wife. We didn't see what changed his demeanor. We, we don't know. 
And all we know is that he, the joke eventually did register and it did piss him off. And we saw what happened after that. Now, I really don't want to get into the weeds of it, truly, even though I'm already there. I'm deep in it. I'm, I'm waist deep in this. There's flies and gnats all around my face. Okay. What I'm saying is there's a lot under the surface here. God, you know, there's the, with Will, if you're going to look into what was going on in his head, why did he do that? Everybody, why would he do such a thing? You know, and everyone's like, oh, he was, he, he talks about in his book about the abuse that he witnessed his father against his, you know, and he, this was his psychological way of standing up, you know, for, for somebody that he loved and, oh, and, Everyone's being a psychologist about it, you know, and oh, the, the, lately, God, there's a lot of public conversation about his marriage with, with Jada and they've had a lot of problems and he, he's been on camera crying about it and, and he's talked about very openly about his sex sex life and, you know, and, and he's a Scientologist. Uh, he's been famous since he was very young. He does not live a normal life the way we all have. He's incredibly rich. Like all these people are looking for reasons. <laughs> and I don't think I'm equipped or in a position to draw any kind of conclusion as to what was going on. All I know is I saw the outward reaction of him losing control of himself and his emotions. My therapist called his emotions were in that moment, um, deregulated dysregulated they were they he was not able to regulate his emotions in those moments and he acted on them that was a hundred percent wrong on will's part absolutely unacceptable behavior but no i got i know i'm saying but <laughs> here it comes at the risk of pissing people off i have to admit i'm not as upset by it as a lot of other people seem to be. I mean, there are some people really up in arms about this. And I'm surprised at myself, okay? Because I'm, I'm, I've talked about this before. I am strictly anti-violence. You know, you aren't going to find me advocating for anyone to hit anyone else ever. If you know me, that's how I've always been. That's my personal policy especially as someone who has been hit in the face before. But I'm also keenly aware that there are many, many people who disagree with my stance. And there are a lot of people that believe that there are a number of instances in which physically hitting someone else is appropriate. It makes me think of those should we punch Nazis conversation, which I'm not comparing Chris Rock to a Nazi, please don't get it mixed up here. <laughs> but I remember in that argument, I thought, no, it's not appropriate to punch anyone. You should never hit anyone. But there are people who really believe, yes, we should punch Nazis. And it's hard for me. I, I go, well, I, I, yeah, maybe. Nazis are real evil. Chris Rock is not real evil, though. Um, I don't, he definitely didn't deserve, in my opinion, to get hit, <laughs> especially in that setting, in that context. No way. Um, but I'm not, I, I, I'm, I also at the same time, and maybe this is why I'm not that upset about it, is I'm a human being 
and I'm not made of stone and I understand the anger and the impulse to fight back against someone that you are perceiving to be a bully, bullying someone you love and feel protective of and whatever all the psychological baggage he's bringing to that. It's I understand how it you if you lost control of yourself that you might do something like that in that moment. I think it's the losing control part that is where he fucked up. He's allowed to feel offended and upset and angry and all those things. You're allowed your emotions. It's what you do with them that is the problem. Um, but everybody has a different definition of bullying. Everybody has a different definition of even violence. There are people who are just like, that wasn't violence. And there's other people who are like, that was m- attempted murder. You know, like there's... A whole range of definitions there. And that's how everybody is bringing their own baggage to the table. And that's why it's such a goddamn mess online right now. Now, I personally, again, I do not think Will Smith should have done that. He lost control of himself. He lashed out at a fellow human being. And it's not right. And he has apologized for it. Now, you can say, oh, he did that because he's scared of getting trouble. I... I People sometimes they want an apology and then they just can't accept it when it comes. I and it's, maybe these things take more time to see if there's person is really remorseful. I don't know, but I, I, to be honest, I'm just not as outraged about this as I am about a million other things going on in Hollywood and the world in general. It's just not at the top of my list. I'm sorry. We were like, this is the most disgusting moment in Oscars history. And I'm thinking, did you know that earlier that day, they did sweeps around the block, removing uh, homeless encampments? Do you understand the violence of that? Don't even get me fucking started on that. But man, I have been seeing some thermonuclear takes online. Like I said, that he could have killed him. A lot of takes that have been since deleted, <laughs> which I'll get to in a second. And some people are acting like Will Smith went up there with a baseball bat. Guys, he didn't. Settle down, okay? Again, it's like, and, and I feel like I'm condoning violence just by saying that. I'm like, no, but let's, let's understand there's a difference between what he did and, and then somebody going bum-rushing him with a baseball bat or a knife or something, you know. So let's dial it back a little. And hey, this is uncomfortable, but fellow white people, look, it's, in my opinion, a bad idea to exaggerate the level of violence in this incident. Given the racist stereotypes that black men have to deal with every day, racist stereotypes that result in the in their deaths at the hands of police, I mean, the long history of, of all of that, just think about what you're saying. Also, a lot of people started doing thought experiments that were so insane. There was one I saw, and this is real. It was like from a doctor. It was like, what if it had been Betty White and she fell backwards and hit her head and had a brain bleed and died? This is dangerous. You know, and I'm thinking, 
oh, dear Lord in heaven, grant me patience. Come on now. (laughs) And so there was all these parodies of the hypotheticals that were very funny. And there were parodies of every bad take going around. And then other people would think that the parody was a sincere bad take. And then the dunking begins on the parody and the parody of the parody begins. And then, oh, here comes Ben Shapiro with what he's got to say. And gee, can't wait to see what Fox News is going to do with it. Good God. Nightmare. Nightmare stuff. And man, trust me when I say I wasn't tempted to dive right on in and start commenting on it all right away. Just so incredibly tempting. I mean, I'm doing it now. I'll admit it. I decided not to get into it on Twitter because what I've learned in my short time, and this is really the meat of what I'm trying to say here. This really is not, this is what, now we're getting into what I really want to say. I'm not really here to litigate, as I said. I'm not really here to get into the rights and wrongs of all that stuff even though I just did. <laughs> I, 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 what I have learned in my short time on this earth and even shorter time in the shit pit of social media is that there is power in what I talked about earlier, in slow observation, especially when it comes to the discourse du jour. I think social media has lured us into thinking that when something happens, we must comment on it immediately, whether with a joke or just our sincere thoughts. And we're not crazy for feeling this way because there is a tangible reward for doing so. The platforms are built to encourage and reward that behavior. Now, I learned years ago that live tweeting shared public events like the Oscars, presidential debates, the Super Bowl... It's an opportunity to get your tweets into the algorithm quickly. And on those nights, you've got things going viral and you're getting way more eyes on your profile than you normally would. And it's a race to get that joke out the door. And you get more likes and more followers. It is simple math. And I remember, I remember years ago starting to clear my schedule for these nights and being like, I can't, I can't do a show that night or I've got to leave. Can I go up first on the show? I got to get home to live tweet the debates. You know, I would clear my schedule because I looked at it as a business opportunity. I was like, this, I can't miss out on this, this free for all tonight, you know? So I get it. I've done it. But for the past few years, I, I just felt like the reward it's not worth the risk of saying something that I might regret. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about like, oh, I might say something offensive and then I get canceled and I'm afraid to speak my mind. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying, um, I'm talking about saying things that are just poorly thought out that provide absolutely zero value to the conversation. And all it results is me worrying if I've been clear with my words, if I've come off stupid or wrong. And for what? You know, why why am I putting that kind of worry and energy into something so useless in comparison to my other creative endeavors? It is not my art. It is more like a slot machine when you're doing this kind of tweeting, you know, it's push the button again and hope I win. But what you win is even hard to define because you're not making a dime doing it. And the and the benefits of a large Twitter following are becoming more and more elusive, if not a burden. In the end, I realized it's a losing game for me. It's also a way, you know, by, by not really getting into these Twitter, you know, free-for-alls, I guess is what you call them. 
um, these live tweet moments is uh, it's a way of protecting myself from getting into emotionally dangerous territory online. You know, I, I it, it is not good for me to get it. Other people can do it and it doesn't affect them. But for me, it's not good for me to get into fights with people online um, for me to like dunk and clap back on strangers and get sassy and, and screenshot people and go, look at this. I mean, I, I used to do that kind of thing. You know, I, I guess it's what the kids would call nowadays showing your whole entire ass online. I just try not to show my whole ass online anymore because it's not good for me. And I've learned that. And it's not how it's just pure and simple. It's not how I want to spend my time. It's not what I want to put out in the world. It's not the work that fulfills me. And, and it's a lie that that it's, I I just I have to resist it. It's tempting. But I never regret not tweeting. Right. So uh, I've opted for slower observation. Because don't get me wrong, just because I'm not posting doesn't mean I'm unplugged from it. Please, obviously, as you can tell, I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> I, I am fascinated by the discourse on any given day. It's not just this Oscar stuff. You can tell I I dread, even though, even though I dread the bad faith elements of the discourse and you know the the nastiness and hatred and divisiveness that comes from all of it. I do enjoy reading earnest takes and analysis all the different angles and then the angle on the angle and the backlash to the backlash and the joke upon the joke I enjoy that it's 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 cultural conversation I I enjoy uh absorbing all of that and I like then to give myself time to find out how do I really feel about this situation before adding to my two cents if I add them at all because what I've come to learn is that sometimes I'll see the first response to something and I'll go, oh yeah, they are, they're right. But then I'll see another response that contradicts that and I start going, wait a minute. And what I found is that my first instincts about how I feel about something are true because of what you can't help how you feel about something. And, um, but I like having my perception and feelings challenged. Um, I don't want just an echo chamber. I don't want to just feel what I feel and have no other opinion come in. So I like to have all that come in. And I even I found even just a one day buffer of time between the big brouhaha on Twitter uh, can really result in a better outcome for me. Because one, the temptation to engage will usually just pass by that point. And also it usually uh, what it leads to is me getting an idea for something for my act or a sketch, or in this case, something to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> um, or it will add to a larger viewpoint I'm developing, that that larger, slow observation I've been talking about, about my perspective on the world and culture. And it gets in, infused into it, whether it's direct or indirect. You know, I, I it gives texture to the work that I'm putting out into the world, even if nothing I ever produce specifically mentions the will, the, the, the slap, you know. <laughs> Uh, whatever debate or, you know, or whatever debate was happening this day or that, it adds a deeper understanding of our culture to what I'm doing in this moment in time and then over a bigger moment in time. I don't know if that makes sense. Don't, no, don't get me wrong, because I, I, 
love a lot of the instant jokes that people put out during these types of brouhaha's. It's it's legitimately fun. Like, remember when Trump got COVID? God, Twitter was fun then. I mean, really fun. <laughs> we need that. You know, the collective uh, joking and laughing about something really crazy. Um, I'm talking about my personal strategy here. I'm in awe of people who are very good at that fast observation and turnaround. And they have thicker skin when it comes to like the ensuing Twitter reactions whenever you put yourself out there. Maybe the joke was a little too quick and misguided or based on misinformation or whatever. You know, there's other people who can really tolerate that much better than I can. But I'll still throw a joke or a thought out there when it comes to me and I'm feeling comfortable with it and I'm sure of myself. And that's fun. So having said all of that, God, it feels like I've been untangling a mess of necklaces You know, when your necklaces get all tangled up and how hard it is to untangle them. I feel like I'm getting to that loose chain that unlocks the whole knot. And now you're on your way. I feel like I'm right there in the conversation. (laughs) So thank you for sticking with me if you're still listening. There's one thing that I just, that's really getting my goat. Having said what I've, all I've just said, there's one thing that's really kind of, pissing me off a little I'll explain so once the slap took place the show very much went on Chris Rock moved on quickly Questlove won his Oscar the show continued on as if nothing had happened Will Smith even won which was just so surreal wasn't it But there have been a lot of people really clutching their pearls about the show going on and how unacceptable that was. And why was he still allowed to be there? A lot of people pointed out that that everybody in the room had just witnessed a violent assault and now they're pretending it didn't happen. And then they're giving the assailant a standing ovation. The hypocrisy. (sighs) First off, of course, the show went on. I mean, have you ever been to a live TV taping? That shit has to go on. Sit in a control room for a live television thing for 15 minutes and feel the chaos and you will understand. They don't have time to even process what's going on. People, I mean, seriously, I've been in these control rooms and it's so stressful. People are yelling, camera two, go, go, go. Cue the music, blue, camera blue. Where are you, Stephanie? Blue, go, listen to me. When I say go, I mean, it is, whoo, it's wild. I mean, they are, when stuff is happening on screen, they are talking about what's coming up. They're not really, you're not fully engaged. And there's a, you know, there's a hundred different cameras. And I'm just saying the people in the control room didn't have full control of what was going on, I think in that room and maybe didn't fully understand it um and well and look a lot of armchair uh quarterbacking here is that the term monday morning quarterbacking i don't know what what were they gonna do let's play this out were they going to tell Questlove to get off the stage in the middle of his speech because, you know, we have an issue? Were they going to go and arrest Will Smith while Questlove is giving his acceptance speech? Are they going to go, hey, 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 guys, we got to stop the show. Come on, let's let's do a sharing circle about how violence is never, never the answer. Hey, let's bring some cops in here and wrestle Will Smith to the ground. 
what are the options here? I could see maybe during the commercial someone being like, all right, buddy, you got to get out of here. That was unacceptable. Okay. That might have worked. I'm not sure. I actually don't know where I stand on the what should they have done. And there's a lot of people, like I said, who think he should have been removed from the ceremony. That that's assault and you've got to get someone like that out of there. But would it have been more dramatic of a disruption to and only made it worse? I, I'm not sure. And what was was anyone really worried about safety after it happened? I, I don't know. I think a lot of comedians were coming at this thinking of themselves in a comedy stage when a strange drunk person storms the stage and can get violent. Yes, we think, oh, God, get that person out of here. That's not okay. But this is not that situation. And, you know, come on, be honest. It's not the same. Yeah, we do treat celebrities differently. Oh, yeah, we do. <laughs> I mean, that's just how it is. Because one, we know who they are. You know, it's, it's a person known to everyone. And I have to ask, is there unconscious racism in that reaction? It's worth asking, you know, why are we having, why are some people having that feeling of, wait, 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 who does Will Smith think he is not getting arrested? Unbelievable. Does he think he's above the law like that? He broke the law, that whole law and order thing. He broke, like half the people there haven't broken the law at some point. <laughs> you know, I... I don't know. It's sticky. It's okay to interrogate these things a little before you say something. And it's okay to not know the answer. Um, it's okay. But this is the thing, and this is where we're heading. <laughs> Leads me to the thing that keeps bugging me. and Because then, of course, he gets up on stage. And that's, I think, the part that people are having a real problem understanding. And it is it is challenging. Like, okay, that thing just happened. And now he's up on stage winning an Oscar. And then they give him a standing ovation. Yeah. that That's <laughs> it's a lot to take in. But here's my thing. And I, I'm sorry. God damn it. It's taken me so long to get to it. People are going... That's showbiz for you. You know, what happened was a perfect encapsulation of how Hollywood enables and upholds abusive people. Look, this guy just punched somebody and then they all gave him a standing ovation. That's how it happens. Hypocrites turning a blind eye to violence. And now look, even though it is a very, very long way from Will Smith slapping Chris Rock in an isolated outburst to years and years of enabling abusers and silencing the victims, cannot conflate those two things. I can see the obvious metaphor that people are trying to make. I can see the picture being painted. It's a very simple, neat way to tie it all up and go, that's Hollywood for you. Because, yes, Hollywood has a terrible track record of uplifting and protecting terrible people. But really, and here's my problem, everybody. If you're going to make that point, you probably shouldn't also be someone who has protected and enabled abusive people. <laughs> it is really something 
when certain comedians are one who are 100% part of the Hollywood machine and 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 hope if they haven't already I think some of the people that have said it have probably gone to the Oscars before or they hope to go they these people are Hollywood so they're commenting they're pretending they're outsiders on Hollywood but really they are part of Hollywood I would include myself as a very very tiny edge person <laughs> in Hollywood I'm on the periphery of it some of these people saying this are, are are pretty well known, and and they're trying to act like they aren't a part of the problem, that they aren't one of those hypocrites. Good lord! I've seen people making this point who I have personally observed for years, standing by, defending, and yes, applauding for known rapists pedophiles, verbally abusive psychopaths, general monsters in comedy who have contributed to a system of misogyny, racism, inequality, and abuse. They've done absolutely nothing to stand up against it. And if they have, well, they only did so when it was beneficial for their own career and safe for them. So yeah, good for you. You just saw the same cognitive dissonance in that room that many of us have seen day in and day out when I see you posting pictures with your arm around a monster. (laughs) Performing alongside known abusers as if it's nothing. Not using your platform or your power to do anything about people you know behind the scenes are, are way worse than what Will Smith did that night. I, I I see them gleefully upholding the status quo. If not gleefully, just woefully ignorant in their upholding of it. And now you're making the connection? I welcome you to the fight, good sir. I, I look forward to you walking out of any club that allows abusive people to perform. I look forward to you not appearing, smiling on TV next to people we all know are criminals. I look forward to you loudly condemning violence in every comedy venue across the land. Finally, they're getting it! (laughs) Not to mention, and this is the part, holy lowly shit, some of the people clutching their pearls over this incident are the abusers themselves. Wonders never cease. (laughs) I mean, wow. I don't know. I am obviously frustrated by a larger issue here um, that has to do with how hard it is to keep your integrity in this business. And I definitely am projecting a little bit of my own struggle onto this, which is like, you know, it's really hard to stand up for this stuff. It's hard to maintain your moral compass in this business. And I have not succeeded at all times, though. I'm proud of how I've carried myself and I have seen the cost of me having to stand up for what's right at certain times. I have felt the blowback. It's when the people wagging their fingers at the hypocrites are raging hypocrites themselves. It feels hopeless. I mean, it really makes me feel awful. And I include myself, like I just mentioned, in this judgment. I'm not sure how you can function in this hellscape without compromising your integrity at some point. Nobody is perfect, and we demand perfection from others to be sure. 
So maybe I'm not being fair. I guess it's just more the blatant lack of self-awareness that really gets me. Like, shut the fuck up. Why did you have to say something? It's a classic, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. I just wish for all of us to cultivate more kindness and thoughtfulness. And maybe that's corny and weak and not what real comedy is supposed to be about. Fuck you. We need to be more considerate of each other. I mean, it played out right in front of our eyes. If there's a takeaway here, Janelle James, who's just, I fucking love her. She's so funny. And uh, she's on Abbott Elementary now. That's probably the biggest thing she's doing. And that show is blowing up and it's so great. But she's such a great comedian. and I love her. Her tweet was probably what I felt was the greatest takeaway. She was just like, look, quarantine was hard on everybody. <laughs> and that's what I mean. It's like, you know, Will and, and Chris, you know, Will more than Chris, obviously, could have benefited for more thoughtfulness in that moment. But I feel like we're all just kind of suffering right now. And these were two very wealthy, powerful men. Yes, within the context of a very white space. And there's racial power dynamics there. So I don't want to dismiss those. But, you know, what are the stakes here, really? Um, In comparison to these other more insidious under the surface problems. So, it, yeah, it gets my goat when famous white comedians just let their tweets rip in the aftermath. I just yearn for them to realize that in some situations, silence is an option. <laughs> Not only is it an option, it actually can be quite valuable. And I say this with compassion. I'm not, I hope it doesn't come across hateful because I, I think some of the people that were saying this are people that I like generally speaking, and and respect. And I don't think that they're monsters and awful people. I just think that they made a misguided comment that isn't helping. And it's point, it's triggering me. It's, it's pissing me off about my shit. Okay, that's all this is. And so back to what I was saying about observation, I think, you know, and I'm disappointed when comedians don't realize the tools that they have, the skills they have, There can be an advantage to shutting the fuck up. There can be an advantage to slow observation in taking your time to really think about what it is you're saying before you say it. There is power in not falling for the lie that whoever gets to the joke or the hot take first wins. There can be wisdom in silence. I mean, these are basic things that I was taught as a kid, right? There is nothing wrong with choosing silence. Or maybe not even total silence, maybe just simply deferring your speech to another time after you had more um, space to think it through or to another platform where nuance can breathe, like a podcast or something written longer. Um, Or to another medium altogether, your act, your script, your solo show, your song, your painting, your TV show idea, you know, what, what themes... Do these bring up for you? What observations about human experience? There's so much you can draw from this without spouting off your nonsense online first. Slow observation and taking your time is where something transformative can happen. 
refraining from instantly posting on social media is is not, and this is where I think some of the compulsion comes from. There's a lot of talk right now about the New York Times just did that really silly article about self-censorship and that free speech is, Americans are afraid to speak freely because of the fear of shame from their peers. Um, I'm not can't even get into that. That's such a fucking stupid article. But while there's real efforts to suppress free speech in legislation with banning books and all don't say gay and all, all those things with real freedom of speech problems on the horizon, this is not one of them. You, you taking a moment to be quiet and to gather your thoughts and to listen and hear other people talk is not self-censorship or the decay of freedom, blah, blah, blah. Instead, it is giving yourself the room to learn and listen and watch, feel, observe, take things in so that when you do speak, your words have more substance and have a chance to be more effective. I'm not saying long-winded like I am right now. You could encapsulate all your feelings into a really amazing joke if you took the time or or if you just wanted to put your thoughts out there in a tweet. I'm not saying you can't do these things. I'm just saying sometimes it feels like people just knee-jerk. And I can see them regretting it. They're deleting it. They're fighting with people. They're, they feel shame for what they did, you know? Maybe this is just a little piece of friendly advice to myself and to others. S- taking a moment with slow observation and choosing silence, it's not the only way, obviously. But it is one of your many options as a person interacting in the public sphere. And I think it's scary because I've been through this, you know, where I stopped commenting on things that I really liked to comment on before. It was hard to break the habit and it felt like I was missing out on a conversation, on feeling relevant, on being noticed. And what I have found is that when I have held back, um... I actually get more out of it in the end. And it's tricky because I don't want to seem like I'm saying to a vulnerable person, even as a woman, you know, women shouldn't speak. You know, I'm not I'm not saying for people to quiet themselves, um, especially if you're in a community that is where your speech has actually been suppressed, historically speaking. Um. I'm just saying that as a public facing person, there is a balance. It's a never ending quest for especially for people who talk for a living to figure out when to talk and when not to talk. I'm still searching for it myself. I'm just tired of the idea that freedom of speech means you must say every little thought that comes up in your little head. And if you don't, well, then you're a victim of the chilling effect of cancel culture, which means America is dead and comedy is dead. And whatever happened to editing? Isn't that like something we value as writers? To killing your darlings. You know that phrase? To revising and revising and whittling down until every, everything, all the fat has been cut and you're left with something really great. And let's be honest. I, I joke when I say, oh, do they know silence is an option? Because of course they know silence is an option. They're very familiar with silence. They opt for silence all the time. Silence when it comes to calling out their abusive friends. Silence when a vulnerable person could use defending and uplifting. Silence when a victim is fighting to be heard and you turn your back on them. 
a little stretch of silence there because I'm not sure what to say next. Um, in conclusion, I encourage anyone out there who has a platform and you make your living by writing and speaking and now with social media, all of that has become very complicated and it's very hard. I say this with compassion to people who have put out really bad takes. It's when I see them, I go, that's what I think. I go, did you know you didn't have to say anything? You didn't have to contribute your thoughts to this conversation. You didn't have to. It's a little secret. A little trick of the trade. It's like this. I used to always share my opinion online. No matter the topic, I was ready to dive into the discourse even when it had nothing to do with me. The result? Me posting a lot of dumb shit. Before I knew it, I was posting dumb shit online every single day. Until all that changed. Now I don't post dumb shit at all. What's my secret? Silence. Surprise? I was too. Turns out you don't have to post anything at all. It's not required. Sometimes you can just be quiet. My girlfriends asked me, but Cheryl, wouldn't that be censoring yourself? Is this the end of a free society as we know it? No, it's actually something else. It's called maturity. I wondered what would happen when I stopped blasting out every half-formed thought from my head like a diarrhea cannon. But now, thanks to silence, I'm posting half the amount I used to, and guess what? I still exist. Silence. I never knew. Did you? In conclusion, calling back to what Janelle James said, quarantine was art on everybody. I bring you this message with kindness and empathy. And let's just give each other and ourselves a little bit of a break. Until next time, love you so much.